0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, June 7th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Blog. Mercedes brings us an update on the news last week that Chinese fighter pilots buzzed Canadian jets in international airspace. Mercedes has the latest on the incident, including reaction from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau.
1: The price at the pump continues to rise with no relief in sight in the immediate future. We catch up with Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, for an explanation of what is exactly causing the record high prices and when we might see a bit of a break when it comes to topping up the tank.
0: It's a timely question as we emerge from the pandemic. Which is more effective, working from home or from the office? Or could a hybrid model be more productive? We discuss with Ashira Gobrin, Chief People and Culture Officer with Wave Financial.
1: And finally, travel is back. And while many of us are interested in booking a much-needed summer getaway, there's still a lot of questions surrounding travel post-pandemic. We speak with the travel lady, Leslie Cater, on the importance of tapping into the knowledge and experiences of a travel agent to get the answers you need and get the most bang for your buck.
0: This week on the West Block, host and Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson spoke with Defense Minister Anita Anand and former Governor General David Johnson. She joins us now to discuss what they covered. Good morning to you, Mercedes. Hey,
2: good morning, guys.
0: Good morning. Uh, You spoke with Defense Minister Anand about the Chinese fighter pilots buzzing Canadian jets, uh, but you also uh, spoke with the Prime Minister and put it right to him. Uh, You questioned, you know, what his thoughts were on it. What did the Prime Minister say, first of all?
3: Well,
2: he said what China is doing is irresponsible, uh, and that is stronger language than what we've heard from him before. And that was actually in response to China's statement yesterday, which I read out loud to him at the press conference we were at. He was speaking with the president of Chile, who was here in town, and the Chinese accused Canada of provocations. They defended their actions, saying that they had been professional, that it was the Canadians who were quote-unquote unfriendly. But then they leveled what sounded like a threat, saying that Canada had better... Uh, quote-unquote, face up to the seriousness of the situation and that if they did not restrain their frontline forces, which were the words the Chinese Defence Ministry used, then Canada would bear the consequences of that. Uh, Pretty direct language there. And, of course, what it ignores, what the Prime Minister pointed out, is that Canada's flying on a United Nations mission. Uh, And China itself, as you know, is a member of the Security Council at the United Nations. So to characterize the canadian intelligence planes as being frontline forces when they're in fact enforcing a united nations resolution and sanctions against north korea to prevent that country from further developing its weapons of mass destruction uh, a little bit disingenuous but it was stronger language that i've heard the prime minister use before this is an ongoing issue we're seeing with five eyes intelligence uh planes in the last month and in fact over the weekend I started asking some questions of the Australians, who weren't too happy to hear from me on it, but it turns out that one of their jets was aggressively intercepted uh, by, and when I say jet, it's, it's their intelligence plane, so I shouldn't call it a jet, uh, very similar to ours that were intercepted over the South China Sea. But the Chinese were much more aggressive with them. In fact, they released metal into the air to jam their radar detector, and it ended up going into the engines of the plane and causing some some concerning damage, enough that the flight crew had to turn around and come back. So now we're looking at somewhere around 30 intercepts that are highly aggressive between May 20th, sorry April 26th and May 26th, that last flight uh, was the Australians on May 26th. So it certainly seems like an escalation as the Chinese try to push out, as experts think, their airspace and claim it by de facto making it really unpleasant and up to dangerous uh, to have planes like Australia or Canada flying in that international airspace.
1: Well, that's what I was going to ask you, Mercedes, sort of what, what's behind it? I mean, is, it, is, is there something to it more than just an aggressive Chinese uh, military, perhaps? I mean, there, there could be a few things. So
2: Canada made the Huawei decision, uh, but some of this started before that Huawei decision. Because uh, remember, it started around April 26th is when Canada showed up for that UN mission, and it started almost immediately. Uh, and, of course, the Australians made their Huawei decision a long time ago. There's ongoing tension between the Five Eyes countries, which is countries like Canada, the UK, the US, um, Australia, New Zealand, and China. So this is, is not unprecedented, but the level of consistent aggression and just how close they're getting, sometimes 20 feet off the wing of a plane, uh, or the example of the Australians releasing metal chaff, is, is a significant escalation, and it's concerning because It takes one small mistake at that speed over international waters, and you have a potentially fatal disaster. Um, So a lot of folks who I've talked to in the national security area think this is really about China trying to claim more airspace uh, to push out. It's interesting they went after the Canadians because the Canadians were around kind of the uh, Sea of East China. That is not typically somewhere they have been hyper-aggressive to the same degree as over the South China Sea. Uh, that is where the Australians were encountered. And, of course, the Chinese have kind of claimed some islands down there that they've been building in an effort to try to say that's there. So we do see more aggression over the South China Sea, typically, as with the Australians. But uh, it is it is unique to see it over the East China Sea and in the area where the Canadians were operating, which is much closer to North Korea and much further north.
0: Also on the West Block this week, you covered a story you're very close to. In fact, uh, we're involved with breaking sexual misconduct in the military. What is the latest, and are we moving to see some positive changes within our military?
2: Well, certainly folks are hoping so, uh, both those in uniform and those out of uniform. The Arbor report, of course, came out last week on Monday. The military is still really digesting it, and, and one of the things I think they found the most shocking Um, was the comments about Royal Military College, which is kind of sacrosanct in military circles. And the suggestion by uh, the former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour that maybe it shouldn't even be a degree-granting institution. Uh, She's very concerned about the culture there. She says it teaches people to avoid responsibility uh, and cover up rather than to take responsibility and lead. That's been super controversial with folks I've talked to inside the military. Even those who don't really like Royal Military College don't want to see it go away. The question is, what happens next? Because at the press conference, Minister Anand uh, accepted immediately less than two dozen of the more than four dozen recommendations. So I was kind of pushing her on the show about when they'll release the rest. They said they'll get back to Parliament by the end of the year. That sounds great, but that's just what they're going to take. We're now two years at that point from when the scandal broke. Uh, And the real concern is exactly what our Boer identified, that the military for years has received reports. It's not that anybody doesn't know what's wrong. It's the unwillingness to fix it and sort of this busy work of making up titles and finding more reports or creating offices. Um, when Arbor says that doesn't get to sort of the heart of not just culture change, but she says also structural change that's needed in the military. The way they promote people, the way they choose who leads, the way they educate their cadets to go back to Royal Military College. So a lot remains to be seen on that. But there's a tremendous amount of political responsibility here, which we haven't seen in previous reports. Our board laid this right at the feet of the politicians. It said, you are the civilian oversight. They don't need an inspector general. They don't need another watchdog. you are the politicians. Get it in order. And how they're going to do that still isn't super clear to me.
1: You know, and uh, you know, as you're saying that too, I'm thinking at the same time, if you want people to join the military, you want the best and the brightest to be joining the Canadian military, you're not going to get that with the culture that exists right now. They really need to do something if they want to beef up what we have right now.
2: And I think that's a great point, Sue, that there's, there's a lot of tension. Um, and, and there's a lot of folks who have joined who are incredibly smart and driven and want to serve their country. But people want to do that in a good environment, and especially just sort of Generation Z now. They really think about the culture of where they work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I apologize for uh, the announcements that are happening here. I'm in a train station right now. <laughs> uh, but it, it's certainly uh, a big question. And I think that there is tremendous tension in the military between folks who want it to remain as it always was, and folks who want change. And I think that it doesn't have to be a binary choice. A lot of the good traditions and the core values in the military can remain the same, and, and there can certainly be traditions that we celebrate that go back many, many, many years. But it's about changing the culture of power and the way power is used. And you will always have that power. It's the military. You can order people into combat to their death. That's the ultimate power. But that's also why it's so important that there is ultimate responsibility and the right kind of leadership that is making those kinds of decisions.
0: Mercedes, I think the conductor is calling you. We'll let you get on your train. (laughs) 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 Uh, Thank you you so much for your time on a Tuesday morning. We appreciate it. Take care. That is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Gas prices in Canada continue to rise with a lot of provinces. Seeing the cost at more than $2 a liter. To explain why gas is so expensive and what we can expect in the coming weeks and months, for that matter, is Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Good morning to you once again, Dan.
4: (laughs) Once again. Yes, maybe I shouldn't be on so often. Every time I do, the price goes up. So uh, It's your fault, Dan. It is, it is. is.
0: Love to have you on to talk about how low it is, but that's not the case. Well, let's dig right into it because we can complain all we want, uh, but why is that price so expensive right now?
4: Uh, tightness in supply, in one word or two or three. Uh, look, this is uh, this is a, uh, a an issue that has been coming for a long time. It's been bubbling up. No one really paid much attention to it. Um, and you know, despite warnings over the years uh, that uh, hog tying pipelines, uh, uh, going after uh, you know um, hydrocarbon production, fossil fuels, etc., would have a, an ultimate uh, consequence for consumers. Most just shrugged your shoulders and thought nothing of it, especially here in eastern Ontario or Ontario where I live in the GTA where uh, it's all been about, uh, you know, thinking we can simply wish away oil and gas. Uh, That's clearly not the case anymore. And uh, we not only have uh, a significant uh, drawdown in supplies of things like diesel and gasoline and oil, we also have emerging, of course, uh, uh, the threat to the global Uh, economy and to security now that uh, Vladimir Putin has played uh, Europe masterfully, a a region of the world that has thought that they could simply wish away fossil fuels, now realizing uh, they went at this a little too quickly. And uh, whether it's the Great Reset or it's just transition or build back better, all of these things uh, weren't done with much thought given to what happens if people continue to use oil and gas, which, of course, they are in record amounts.
1: And we're up a buck over a buck ninety a liter this morning in Calgary. Yeah. So, are we expecting this just to continue to rise right through summertime?
4: I think for now, I'll say we're going to hold off. Um, you know, maybe we could see prices moderate at this point for the next week or so until we get into July, uh, the July contracts for fuel. Uh, look, it's uh, two fifteen for a liter of gasoline here in Toronto. Um, it's uh, two twenty-four in Montreal. It's two thirty-six point nine in Vancouver. So, yeah, despite We're relatively speaking, off easy. it's not as bad. You're <laughs> getting off well. Well, your government did decide to reduce that $0.13 cent, right. uh, sales tax. And In fact, that has been honoured by gas stations. I've heard rumblings that uh, some uh, political parties in your province are trying to cash in on this. And the idea behind it, of course, is more generally regulated prices work they don't by the way uh, newfoundland which has it is grumbling this morning they got a one fell swoop increase of nine cents a liter and no one told them at least in the case of alberta saskatchewan that on regulated markets folks like me can go and say hey guess what you're gonna get an increase which i did last friday
0: could you know what, what the ucp did could the federal government do anything about this at this time dan
4: it could it should but it won't Uh, and that's because there hasn't been enough pain inflicted on consumers uh, to get them to back off this idea of ever-increasing carbon taxes, strangulation of uh, our most important asset and export, oil and gas, uh, and, of course, uh, uh, finding other ways to include new carbon taxes. There is a new one coming up, by the way. It's called the Clean Fuel Standard uh, and explains why Places like Vancouver are far more expensive than pretty much everywhere else in the country and British Columbia in general. And that's uh, a second carbon tax, which requires uh, those who are producing uh, fuel to find offsets, credits. So some of them will blend ethanol a lot more. Uh, That'll be a short-term fix. But longer term, not only are we looking at escalation of the number, the the first carbon tax to another, what, 25, 30 cents a liter over the next uh, five or six years. We're now looking at a clean fuel standard, which I call the second carbon tax, which will increase prices, another 15, 16 cents a litre. So it doesn't really matter how you look at it. The federal government and its allies are looking to make uh, it painful and difficult to uh, to use diesel, gasoline, propane, natural gas, and that, of course, is uh, proving to be uh, a very flawed and very ridiculous uh, uh, perspective because, of course, it's not reducing yeah. so-called carbon emissions. What it's doing is making the country very poor.
1: Painful is right, and we thank you for your time this morning, Dan. Uh, Great yeah, to be here. It's a pleasure to <laughs> chat with you. The the, uh, the the information is not always pleasurable, but thanks for joining us.
4: Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, folks. Appreciate Bye-bye. Appreciate
1: it. Dan McTagg, President, Canadians of, for Affordable Energy.
0: When offices closed because of COVID, working from home became the new normal. And when offices reopened, a lot of people decided to remain working from home or a hybrid of home and office. Ashira Gobrin is the Chief People and Culture Officer at Wave Financial and joins us to explain where her employees do their best work. Good morning to you, Ashira.
3: Hi, good morning, Andy. Good morning, Sue. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, tell us
0: about your work structure. Do your employees work uh, uh, at the office or are still at home?
3: Our employees are actually working in this new buzzword, the hybrid model, meaning that they can choose to work from home or in the office or a combination of both. So essentially, we're trying to keep the flexibility that we value and believe had um, real meaningful, meaningful or tangible um, value for our employees and also have that
1: some present in the office. Ashira, how do you determine where an employee or how an employee is most productive for you at your office? Is it on an individual basis or did you kind of just make an overall structure? We're still working a little with that, Sue. So it's a great question and I don't think that there's an easy answer to
3: that. I think companies are really struggling to figure out that balance. I think the one thing that we're trying to focus on right now is to be in-person for moments that matter. And moments that matter could be big company get-togethers, for example, town halls. Um, They could be team meetings where the whole team gets together, or they could be in-person one-on-ones that might be more effective than a conversation taking place over a Zoom meeting. And so those are really essentially up to the employee themselves, but we are putting more weight on Come in for the things that would make a difference to be in for and center your days around that so that you're not, you know, sitting in a room all day on a telephone that you could be doing at home.
0: Kind of a case by case basis, but I'm wondering, have you noticed a change in productivity, uh, you know, from your entire organization since before the pandemic or are you back to where things should be when it comes to the productivity of your whole team?
3: It's another interesting question, Andy, because I think our productivity didn't go down over COVID period. I think that we're, a, we're obviously a technology company. And I say this with sensitivity to the fact that not every job can be done remotely. There's a lot of, of people that do have to go to their play or nurses, doctors, teachers, things that really do need to be present. And even in my own office, there's some jobs that have to be done in person. But when I look back at productivity, I'm not sure that productivity is actually the big question that we should be asking. I think we really trust our employees to get their job done and to, to choose the place that's best for them to do that. I think the real longer-term impacts are on creativity, on innovation, on emotional connection, of a feeling of belonging. And those things, I believe, are very difficult to do completely remotely um, which is why we've not taken the remote first option for an office. We have said hybrid. And hybrid does mean that some of the time you must be in the office.
1: Did you kind of do some polling or speak individually to your people and see what they were looking for or hoping for? What did that look like as you were kind of trying to figure out what this new normal would look like?
3: Um Wow. Okay. I don't think that the data is very different company to company on that. I think very early on in the pandemic, we saw about 20% of people saying... They love the remote environment and they just are flourishing and would never go back to a full-time office environment. We saw 20% on the other side who were really, really struggling with it. And about 60%, give or take, in the middle that said they would love to retain the flexibility, but they think that it's important to be in for some part. so we're still working with that and we're trying to figure out what, is, what does be in the office mean. We don't want to mandate. We don't want to tell people when they have to be in, but we do want them to be in some of the time. And so without saying you need to be in this many hours a week or on these specific days a week, we're, we're working a little bit to learn what works for our employees and also what works for the company, for the culture that we're trying to build and, and for the results that we're trying to achieve.
0: Very interesting time, and uh, thank you for sharing us, uh, with us your experience, Ashira. Appreciate your time.
3: Thanks for having me. Thank
0: you. That is Ashira Gobrin, WAVE Financial's Chief People and Culture Officer. It does not sound like it's a one-size-fits-all suit, it, not only for businesses, but for an employee. What, what works for you might not work for everyone
1: really need to be on site, right? I mean, you and I, we I did work from home for a few days when I got COVID, but it's not the ultimate way to do a morning show, for example. We need to look at each other. We need to be able to see mm-hmm. each other when we're speaking. Annoy each
0: other in person. Annoy
1: each other in person, 100%. So, yeah, it looks different for everybody, I think. But, you know, here's a text that says, my husband spends two days a week at home. He gets so much done on those days because in the office, it's, it's open concept. So people can kind of come up to you at any point, interrupt your workflow. Everybody wants to chat, right? At home, he's so much more efficient. Um, It says he also appreciates going in and having time with his company, but they know, and he knows, hands down, the company's getting more bang for their buck when he's working at home.
0: Well, you know, but also to that point, you know, you can be interrupted, as this texter says. I know people in our industry, in our building, and and in other industries who perhaps live at home alone. And to them, they're only linked to the outside world besides seeing friends, but they need that human interaction face to face. So it brings about the question because I know we're at that point very much in the city. Where are you? Are you still 100% from home, 100% in the office, or have you been given the option to, to kind of, uh, you know, straddle one foot in the in the home work office and one in the office the office? The
1: hybrid, as it were.
0: Yes. So let us know on the text line at 403-974-8255, your current situation. And just again, as you mentioned earlier, after 830, continuing the conversation mm-hmm. about maybe being forced Come back to the office. We'll get into that.
1: And we are all just dying to get out there and do some traveling now. But with all the changing rules, it's no wonder we sometimes are a little confused about what we need to do. And maybe we need the advice of the travel lady. The travel lady, Leslie <laughs> Cater, joins us now. Hi, Les. How are you? Hi. Good morning. I'm very well. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay. So, you know, when you have people coming into the travel agency, uh, you know, or calling you and needing help, what are what are most people looking for right now? Well, they're they're
5: confused by the rules. Now, you know, a lot of people will phone up or come in and they'll say, oh, you know, I'm going to Vegas next week or I'm flying down to Palm Springs. And what do I need to do and what shots do I need? So clearly they've booked it already online. And now they're confused because they're not getting help from the online. And so my advice to those people is book with a travel agent this is what we do, this is our specialty. We advise people we go from A to Z and go through all the requirements that you need and we're there for all the questions. So do it yourself is is great. I mean, online, yep, I've been there, done that. I'm a big online shopper. But when it comes to something complex like this, I prefer to speak to someone and, and go to your local travel agent.
0: Just looking at your notes here, Leslie, and I think this is worth underscoring. You want to do some uh, due diligence, do your research, because a travel agent can also specialize in a certain type of trip or part of the world or type of travel that you're looking for as well, be very much specialized.
5: That's right, Andy, because if you think about it, uh, everybody can't know everything. So that's why it's a big world of travel out there. So I know from my colleagues as well in the business that some will specialize in certain areas like weddings and honeymoons or senior tours or uh, young people's touring. So everybody has their own little feel. So if you're looking for a travel agent, go onto their website, have a look and see what their niche product is, where they have their focus, their expertise,
1: and then you're able to see, is this the right agent for me? Leslie, what about when I'm booking flights? Do I go through a travel agent or is it better to go online and, and kind of, you know, jump around and see what deals I can get?
5: Right. So if you're booking just flights, nothing else, then honestly your best bet is to go directly to the airline. Don't go to a third-party site um, online because they're just contracting out to the airline. And then you get a situation when you're at the airport and something needs to be changed on your ticket then the airline won't do it directly because they can't see the contract in their system. They're going to be saying to you, well, you need to go back to your travel agent, which in that case was that online website. So just go directly, go on to Air Canada, go on to WestJet, We've got uh, lots of competitive airlines coming up now. We've got Flair and Swoop and Rouge and uh, lots of competition there. So go directly to the website. and Make sure you're booking on their website. They'll give you a lot more control over your file.
0: Such great advice because I know that it's uh, on the verge of summer here. People are looking ahead. We appreciate your time, Leslie.
5: (laughs) Okay. Thanks so much, guys. Have a good day. You too.
0: Leslie Cater, the travel lady.